0: Good evening. This evening, I'm going to talk about one of the most powerful tools in medicine in this series on public health, and that is on vaccines. Millions of people are alive today because of vaccination. Some would have died in childhood without it. Many, for many others, their parents, their grandparents or other forebears would have died or been permanently disabled if they'd not had vaccination. And some of the examples of these, and we'll go through several of these, include tetanus, smallpox, diphtheria, measles, many causes of meningitis, and polio. For many people in wealthier countries, we often do not realise quite how much we owe to vaccination, although that would have been known really quite recently in the immediate past. And what we have here is a picture of people queuing for smallpox vaccination in the 1960s in Cardiff. All around the world though, vaccination is saving lives in extraordinarily large numbers. And this talk is really about how that came to be. In addition to dealing with childhood diseases, which will be the first half of this talk, uh, vaccines are also very important for our ability to deal with many epidemics and many adult diseases. So recent epidemics where vaccines have been important are COVID-19, which we're living through at the moment, and I'll talk a bit about that in the second half of this talk. Influenza pandemics, which I won't be covering, but vaccines are a major part of our armamentarium against that. And Ebola, where we now have highly effective vaccines that can be used when there are outbreaks. They're also uh, able to combat many of the diseases of adulthood, including important infections, uh, some of which are life-threatening, like pneumococcal disease, which causes pneumonia uh, in older people, uh, and uh, some of them which are extraordinarily unpleasant, uh, in some cases, such as shingles. And increasingly, uh, we're recognizing vaccination as one route uh, to tackle some of the important cancers, of which the two most important at the moment are cervical cancer, Uh, in women and liver cancer now vaccination uh, is actually in many ways a very natural process because when you're celebrating vaccines you're also celebrating the immense power of your immune system vaccines harness this power vaccines themselves do not kill viruses or bacteria or neutralise toxins we do So what a vaccine allows us to do is it allows our immune system to recognize that something is a major threat in advance of an infection, and it does this by mimicking an infection, and then much more safely, allowing the immune system to respond to that so that when it first encounters the real thing, it can deal with it and jump on it and uh, neutralize it uh, or kill it extremely quickly. So it gives it advance warning that something dangerous might be coming. I do not want to imply in this talk that vaccines are the answer to all infectious diseases. They're not. There are many infections where vaccines are not uh, a central part of our response or any part of our response. Some examples of these are we have many major infections where we currently do not have a vaccine. And an important example of that is HIV disease, uh, the cause of the last really major dangerous pandemic before COVID-19. For some, we have an okay vaccine, but we also have better countermeasures. Uh, examples of these are cholera, where we've had a long for a long time uh, vaccines and typhoid, but we owe a lot more in terms of our control uh, for cholera, for example, to good sewers and clean water, Uh, rather than vaccination. On the right, I've illustrated this uh, with the construction of the Great Sewers of London, which really were critical uh, to defeating uh, cholera. And then for some diseases, uh, although we do have vaccines, the disease is not common enough to be worth vaccinating under normal circumstances. And some examples of that might be plague, where only a very limited number of people are likely to be exposed. It still exists as a disease. Uh, or in the UK, in humans, uh, rabies. We have good rabies vaccination, but there is not enough disease to justify this. But if you travel to a country where there's a lot of rabies, you should be offered a rabies vaccination. So uh, sometimes we don't have a vaccine, and sometimes uh, we don't need a vaccine because the threat is not great enough. But for many diseases, and many really uh, appalling diseases... Uh, we do have vaccines and we need to use them to reduce the threats. And when deciding whether to use a vaccine, we have to really consider three separate questions. The first is, is this disease a significant risk? If the disease is trivial, or if it is so uncommon you're almost uh, never going to come into contact with it, it's probably not worth having a vaccine even if one is available. The second question is, how effective is the vaccine? And if you don't have a highly effective vaccine or a fairly effective vaccine, then it's really not worth uh, vaccinating in many cases. So you need to have highly effective vaccines for significant diseases, and they have to be effective for long enough for the protection to be worth having. Some uh, bits of immunity uh, don't last very long. Some vaccines, uh, a single vaccination lasts for a lifetime. So it is a a very um, variable uh, situation, but you need to have an effective vaccine, obviously, to be worth continuing. The third question is what are the side effects? Most vaccines are actually extraordinarily safe. But if there are vaccines that have got significant side effects, that's got to be justified by the amount of benefit that people are going to get from them. So if you consider, for example, polio, this uh, Child uh, is in an iron lung from polio. Uh, it was possible to uh, accept a very small but real risk from the vaccination uh, in the early phases, the early stages of the vaccination, less safe vaccines, because this was a very common, extraordinarily dangerous disease. So you need to be realistic about the side effects, and they've got to be small enough that it's still worth doing, because you then need to do a benefit to risk decision. There's got to be a significant benefit from the vaccine, and you've got to be sure that the risk is smaller than that benefit for the average person who's getting it. This is true for all of medicine. This is true for if you're prescribing a drug, if you're undergoing a major operation. It's always about uh, what is the benefit compared to what is the risk. But the great majority of the vaccines that I'm gonna be talking about today are extraordinarily effective against really unpleasant or very dangerous diseases, uh, and they are very safe. The spur to vaccination was smallpox. Um, Smallpox is an ancient disease, goes back a very long way, uh, with major epidemics in Europe and elsewhere. And the more common form, variola major, had a mortality of over 30%, and in infants, over 80%. So this is a very dangerous and also very common, at that point, uh, infection. Survivors were left badly scarred And up to a third in some uh, reports were left blind. So, this is a very major disease. Now, it had been known since as early uh, as 480 BC, so for a long time, that survivors were likely to be immune. Uh, It wouldn't have been called that at that stage, but there was a recognition if people had had the disease that they were at much lower risk of getting it again, and uh, in some cases were asked to nurse uh, the sick who had it. And this was a major cause of mortality around the world. Here in London, for example, in the 1750s, pre-vaccination, around uh, 10% or more of deaths in London uh, were due to smallpox. So this is a very major public health issue. The first uh, steps towards vaccination uh, were a process called variolation. Variolation was an early practice uh, that was developed in Asia and Africa. And in this, pus from a pustule from someone who had smallpox, was inoculated with a sharp instrument uh, into someone who had not had the disease, uh, into an area which was generally invisible uh, under normal circumstances. And around 2% of the people who had this would contract smallpox and die, uh, and in some of them, uh, they would pass it on to other people, and it would cause an outbreak. But this was much better odds than natural infection, which had a higher chance of killing them and a higher chance of causing uh, disfiguring, scarring. uh, And therefore, people were prepared to undergo this process. So here's an example of a very high-risk inoculation, not a vaccination, but a very high-risk process, but the risks of not having it were even greater. And this was uh, introduced into Western Europe from Turkey by this remarkable uh, woman, Lady Mary Wortley Montagu, also a writer and poet and adventurer, uh, and uh, she uh, brought with her the embassy doctor uh, who undertook a trial, a study, in prisoners in Newgate Prison, just up the road from where I'm speaking here, in 1721, that demonstrated it was possible to do this, pr- this procedure, uh, and then uh, the prisoners survived, and when they were challenged with smallpox subsequently, uh, they didn't get it. Uh, the prisoners were uh, at least under some circumstances, uh, volunteers. But this, of course, was a very dangerous process. And the next step and really the first and critical step towards proper vaccination was undertaken uh, a bit later by this uh, remarkable man, uh, Dr. Edward Jenner. It had long been known in uh, folk uh, wisdom that dairymaids and others exposed to an infection called cowpox uh, from cattle did not get smallpox and Dr Jenner who was a Gloucestershire country doctor would now I think probably be called a GP uh, but also a scientific polymath he's a remarkable man uh, who became for example a fellow of the Royal Society for his descriptions of cuckoos looked at hedgehog hibernation covered uh, multiple areas of medicine uh, and also went ballooning he was a Uh, one of those people who did uh, almost any scientific thing that came his way. Uh, But he was the first person systematically to study this. And in May 1796, he inoculated cowpox from a woman who uh, had had got it into an eight-year-old child, James Phipps, who otherwise would have had variolation. And James had very mild symptoms from which he then recovered. And when he subsequently... Uh, had the variolation, uh, inoculation with smallpox, uh, the smallpox did not take. He was protected. This was the first example of being able to use an extremely mild uh, infection uh, and use this to protect against a much more serious one. And Jenner continued to improve this technique to promote it, to vaccinate uh, the poor uh, in his area. And vaccinate came from uh, the word for cow, which is hence the name. Um, And he also did observational uh, studies, including a very important observation that people who'd had uh, this inoculation with cowpox vaccination might get smallpox much later in life. So the immunity was waning to some degree, but if it occurred, it was much milder. And this observation by Jenner is important. Uh, And it's important, in fact, uh, for thinking about some of the vaccines we're currently considering for COVID-19. Many vaccines are not all or none. That is to say, you may well have a situation where a vaccine prevents infection, you don't get any infection, or it may prevent significant disease, although you still get infected, or if you have significant disease, it may prevent you from dying, which you otherwise would have done, without the vaccination. So vaccination is not an absolutely all or none effect. And this is illustrated by these two boys, both of whom caught smallpox at the same time uh, from the same source. The boy on the right uh, was vaccinated and has very, very minimal pustules. Uh, The boy on the left uh, was not vaccinated and you can see the result. So this is a situation where the vaccine significantly reduces the severity of the infection even if it does not prevent it. And many vaccines reduce severity of disease, even if they don't stop infection. And the second thing from uh, Jenner's observation is the effects of vaccines can wane over time. Vaccines for smallpox continue to work uh, and continue to have a major impact on reducing smallpox, first in higher income countries and then around the world. And it got to the point where in uh, 1959, the World Health Assembly, uh, which is the uh, the formal body for the World Health Organization, agreed that uh, we should, as a globe, try to eradicate smallpox. And at that point, roughly two million people a year were still dying of this disease. The vaccine used was very similar to the one used by, um, by Jenner. It was, used by, it was introduced by a very simple, what's called bifurcated needle, demonstrated here. Uh, and there was a global movement to vaccinate everybody. Uh, and over time, the map of places where there was, vac- was, uh, was smallpox shrank very considerably. And you can see the map uh, 1967 on the left all the way through to, the, to uh, 10 years later. The last continuous case was in October 1977, Uh, And, in fact, the last lab case that was caught uh, in a lab was here in in the UK, in Birmingham, in 1978. It is estimated uh, that over 300 million people died of smallpox during the 20th century. After it was eradicated, uh, no one has. And this major threat to humanity has completely gone. So this is the most extreme end of vaccination protecting against disease. None of us now need to be vaccinated against smallpox. The disease is gone. Several other vaccines were subsequently developed, and I'm just going to highlight two of them um, uh, in the early years. The first of which uh, is rabies. Uh, rabies vaccine was, it was produced by Louis Pasteur and Roux in uh, 1885. Uh, and um, this is an incredibly unpleasant disease, uh, with, a, for practical purposes, 100% mortality. And of all the infectious diseases uh, I have seen, Rabies is the one I would least like to die of. People die in terror, uh, and it's a very unpleasant uh, way uh, to end your life. Uh, the initial um, vaccine that uh, Pasteur produced was from an infected rabbit, and it was from the spinal cord, and he inactivated the virus by a process, over a process of time. And then when a child uh, was uh, potentially infected... This was vaccinated into the child before they developed the rabies symptoms, and this was effective. But this was a relatively high risk vaccine to use. So it was used in people who'd actually been exposed to a, a rabid dog, because almost all cases uh, in humans arise from dog bites. The vaccine has now got steadily safer. So initially, it was only uh, broadly used in people who were incredibly high risk or had been bitten. Uh, But it's now safe enough to be able to use pre-infection. And if you travel to an area where there's a lot of rabies, uh, you will be offered this vaccination against this very dangerous disease. A second uh, use for the uh, vaccine, however, was also to vaccinate dogs. uh, And in areas where there was rabies in the wild animals, uh, to put out bait with vaccines for, for example, foxes. And this has led to rabies, the map of rabies, gradually moving uh, away uh, and get, becoming smaller and smaller in area. So, for example, there's very little rabies now uh, in Europe and uh, none are here in the UK. So here is another terrible disease massively reduced by this vaccine. Uh, that was a, a relatively old vaccine, but which has steadily become a lot safer. The initial vaccine was effective, but less safe. It had become steadily safer. And the third uh, relatively uh, older vaccine I'd like to highlight... Uh, largely because it's a centenary of it being used uh, for the first time in humans, is BCG. BCG, uh, so you have live uh, virus, but a different species for um, cowpox to protect against smallpox. You have an inactivated, for practical purposes dead, virus uh, for rabies. BCG is a live related, but what's called attenuated, weakened mycobacteria. These are the kind of uh, infection that causes tuberculosis, uh, and it in fact came from uh, bovine tuberculosis, again from cows. Uh, Still used today. Uh, It's fairly effective at protecting against uh, tuberculosis in children, uh, less so, for example, in adults, uh, and uh, it's not a perfect vaccine, but we haven't improved on it for TB at this stage. It is also highly effective against another terrible historical disease, leprosy. And it led, uh, it's been part of the reason why leprosy is a much less uh, major disease around the world than it used to be. Now, a vaccine is really just a way of getting a lasting immune reaction safely. And before we come on to COVID vaccines, where things have moved on very rapidly in the last year... Uh, just consider some of the pre-COVID technologies that have been used, some of which, as you can see, were over a century old. Uh, Live-related viruses, like cowpox, live attenuated but weak virus or mycobacteria, like BCG, in, in an activated virus or dead bacteria, uh, and uh, the example there was rabies, a toxin, or come on to this, uh, but an important example for that uh, would be uh, tetanus, where the disease is actually caused by the toxin uh, that, is, that is in small uh, amounts. But increasingly, we've moved to a situation where we don't have to use uh, such large amounts of the infection. Uh, a bit of a protein from the coat of the virus or the bacteria, uh, a complex sugar, uh, what's called a polysaccharide, or a comb- combination of the two, what's called a glycoprotein from the coat. And you don't therefore have to put in the full virus or the full bacteria, you put in this small part of it, and that's enough for the immune system to recognize it. And then when you get a proper infection, it will respond. And then with some of these, uh, you have to also give uh, something what's called an adjuvant, which helps stimulate the immune system so it recognizes that it actually needs to respond. And although people think of vaccination as always given by injection, and very many of them are, uh, some of them are also given by mouth um, and some of them uh, can increasingly be given, for example, up the nose. So some children are are vaccinated against flu uh, by by the nasal route, which is more acceptable, uh, particularly for young children. So how do vaccines work? Well, the body is being assailed by... Uh, bacteria and viruses, fungi and parasites the whole time and it has multiple layers of defense ranging from simple things like the fact your skin is very difficult to get through for infections uh, so a barrier, layers of mucus and things like that. It also has what's called the innate immune system and this is when uh, the immune system responds without having learnt about a particular infection, it just responds very very actively against an infection uh, non specifically and without memory. I'm not going to go into that in any detail at all because it's not relevant to vaccination, but is very important as to how you fight infections. But a third layer of defense is what's called the adaptive immune system. And this is much more specific to a single infection. And the adaptive system learns an infection and then when it sees it again, when it again invades the, inf- the, the body, it responds much more quickly and much more vigorously. The next time, it is ready. It is this part of the immune system that vaccination uses. Those of you who've recently done biology uh, will remember all of this in some detail, and I'm going to simplify an incredibly complicated and sophisticated system, which is the adaptive immune system. Broadly, what happens with a vaccination as with an infection... Uh, is that uh, particular cells, dendritic cells, present bits of the, uh, of, the uh, of the potential invader to other bits of the immune system. So they chop up bacteria and viruses uh, and they present them to uh, antigen-recognizing uh, T lymphocytes, which is the kind of the, the next stage of the immune system. And then two groups of cells broadly uh, respond to that. Uh, t-cells including an important group called uh, killer t-cells which will recognize this thing in the future and kill uh, cells with it in Uh, and antigen producing b lymphocytes and finally they produce an important group called memory cells and these survive for long periods and then if they're re-exposed to the same thing they respond again And the T lymphocytes, the killer T lymphocytes and the memory cells with the antibodies that they produce uh, well, that they lead to the production of later on are the key things that allow a vaccine to prime the immune system and then the next time it's exposed to a real infection the immune system responds fast uh, and in a very focused way. Now often the immune system may need more than one go to get to the maximum amount of uh, effect. And so many vaccines need a second or even a third dose to get the best protection and to maintain it over time. So the primary vaccination is like a first infection, and what you can see in this graph is you get an initial response, uh, what's called IgM, that's not the bit that's really important on this, and then a rather larger response with antibodies with the IgG, but then if it's, if it's re-exposed, the second arrow on the right, then you've got a much larger response, much more quickly this time on the second time round and in a much more focused way. So the first dose is made much stronger and indeed more long-lasting by having the second dose. That's why it's very important that people who have a first dose of the vaccine at the COVID vaccine absolutely must get uh, the second one as well, if the vaccine they have is one that's designed for two doses, leading to a much more focused and stronger response. So that's the basics and the history of vaccination. And now I'm gonna talk about some of the key vaccines in childhood. And I'm not going to go through all of them because uh, there are uh, too many for uh, a single talk. But I do want to start off with a single vaccine, this six-in-one vaccine, uh, as an example of one that's given here in the UK and in many other parts of the world. Here it's given at 6, 12, and 18 weeks old. And this covers six very major infections uh, in an extraordinarily effective way. Tetanus. And it does this with a toxoid, so this is a toxin, an antitoxin uh, response by the immune system. Diphtheria, also an antitoxin response. Pertussis, also known as whooping cough, which is a cellular type of vaccine. Polio, which is an inactivated virus. Hib, which is Haemophilus influenzae type B, which is a polysaccharide protein conjugate, so it's a bit of sugar and protein from uh, the bacteria uh, together um, in in the vaccine, uh, and hepatitis B, which is a bit of protein from the surface. And all of these are in this vaccine. And the 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 result of this is they protect the child given it against six of the most dangerous diseases that they could be exposed to. Now, remember the the three questions that I think were important to ask. Uh, Is the disease dangerous? Does the vaccine work? And is the vaccine safe? Now, all of these, the vaccines work highly effectively, and this is a very safe vaccine. But uh, I just want to lay out why these are such important diseases to protect against. So in this six and one, the first one is tetanus. Tetanus is the other appallingly uh, unpleasant disease uh, to watch someone with. Uh, it firstly is extremely dangerous in childhood. In rural communities without expert midwifery, um, infant mortality rates uh, used to be incredibly high, up to 50%. I've illustrated this uh, with St Kilda, where up to 50% mortality in infants was recorded uh, within, uh, w- within the not too distant uh, past. Uh, and in some settings, tetanus can be the majority of these. If a child gets tetanus, Uh, then mortality uh, will, under most circumstances, be almost 100%. And in adults, it's an incredibly unpleasant disease, uh, which leads to very painful spasmings and often death, uh, illustrated here by a famous painting by Sir Charles Bell um, of a soldier who had tetanus. The, the, The vaccine is a toxin which is inactivated. It's a toxoid, and that's because the thing which causes the disease is not the infection, but the toxin that the bacteria produces. And therefore, the vaccination is against the toxin. The vaccine is highly effective. It was introduced widely in the 1950s, developed a little bit earlier. It doesn't stop the infection. The infections still happen, but stop someone getting the disease. But because it's not stopping infection, it has no herd effect. So only people who are vaccinated are protected. People who are not vaccinated are not protected in any way. Very safe relative to risk of disease. Severe allergic reactions, which are treatable, are less than one in a million. Um, uh, And tetanus uh, was very common in rural Europe and North America, and the rates came down very rapidly. So by 2019, uh, only four cases, for example, in the UK used to be a very common disease. And there have been, uh, thankfully, uh, recent rapid drops in Africa and Asia. Maternal vaccination has almost eliminated neonatal tetanus the second disease which this protects against is diphtheria this used to be the third leading cause of deaths in children in the UK in the 1930s so there are people alive today uh, who uh, w- would have been uh, children in this era case fatality rate up to 20 percent and it's common It's common throat bacteria where some strains produce a toxin It has local effects uh, on the throat, can lead to people finding it almost impossible to breathe, effects on the heart leading to very dangerous heart rhythms and effects on the nerves. So this is a very unpleasant uh, infection uh, caused with the the damage caused by the toxin. And again, an toxoid, in the uh, vaccine and that means the immune system recognises the toxin and mops it up. First free vaccine in the UK, in England in uh, 1940, Uh, And uh, at that point, there were uh, around 2,500 deaths a year in children. Uh, You can see with that blue arrow when the uh, diphtheria vaccine was introduced, the rapid reduction in cases, uh, and by 1950, uh, a decade later, only 49 deaths. And worldwide, there's been a massive reduction in deaths, uh, was over a million a year before the 1980s, has now very substantially uh, decreased. The third uh, vaccine within this six-in-one vaccine uh, is polio. And two uh, polio vaccines, an attenuated oral one, a live attenuated oral uh, vaccine uh, and an inactivated injection vaccine were both uh, produced in uh, the uh, middle of the last century. And the reason this was important was polio was a common paralyzing disease. Uh, and the advantages of the oral version was it was easy to give it was acceptable you just put it on a sugar lump I still do produces good immunity but can cause a bit of spread but very rarely about three per million doses can actually cause polio-like paralysis much much safer than actually catching the natural infection but still a risk The result of introducing these two uh, vaccines is that polio, which was a rising problem in the US and a significant problem in Europe, uh, disappeared incredibly fast. And that has actually gone away to a very large degree uh, over the the last uh, bits of the last century. So by 2000, polio, which would have been a massive cause of paralysis and some substantial mortality, had gone down to incredibly low numbers. So if you look back to 1988, uh, there were about 350,000 wild cases of polio. Uh, last year, there were around 140, according to WHO figures. This disease is tantalizingly close to eradication, but not quite there. And that's been the situation for several years. Eradicating diseases is, quite di- is very difficult. And I gave a talk on that for those who are interested uh, a couple of years ago at Gresham College. Uh, The other thing I wanted to show, though, with this map is um, the cases of wild polio are now restricted just to uh, parts of Pakistan and Afghanistan, but there are still cases of paralysis caused by the the oral vaccine, not the injectable one here uh, using children in the UK, very small numbers of cases, but for this reason, uh, the, the injectable form of the vaccine is also extremely important. The next thing in this extraordinary vaccine that children have is uh, a vaccination against a bacterial infection, Haemophilus influenzae B, HIB, and this causes both meningitis and pneumonia. It was, until really quite recently, the commonest cause of meningitis in children under the age of four. Uh, One in 20 died, so this is a dangerous disease, and one in five of those who survived uh, were left with serious neurological disabilities. The vaccine was introduced in the UK uh, in 1992, and it reduced the incidence extraordinarily fast by more than 90%. You can see with the arrow where the vaccine was introduced. And so if you compare the numbers in 1991, uh, 759 uh, cases, uh, by 2014, only two uh, in this age group. And it also reduces carriage, which means people who actually carry it Uh, and can infect other people. So injecting uh, someone else's children also protects uh, my own family's children. And there's, I'm glad to say, been a global programme now uh, since 2014 against this almost entirely preventable uh, but potentially very serious disease in children. And the final one I wanted to talk about in the six-in-one vaccine was hepatitis B. This is a a relatively rare disease in the UK but a very common disease globally and it can cause cirrhosis and it can cause uh, liver cancer. It can be passed on three ways. Mother mother to child. If the mother's infected, she can infect her child. Then infected children can pass it between themselves by playing together Uh, and then in adulthood, uh, it can be passed on uh, either sexually or or by intravenous drug use and uh, occupationally uh, for healthcare workers. It's a relatively rare cause of liver cancer and cirrhosis in the UK, but a major one uh, in Asia and Africa with a very high mortality. The vaccine uh, is 90 to 95% effective. And in Taiwan, for example, which had a lot of hepatitis B, uh, the vaccination programme for inference reduced cancer incidence by 80% and mortality from the cancer by over 90%. So it is an astonishing uh, vaccine. So that's... Five of the six things in the uh, six-in-one vaccine. And there are several other vaccines that children will get. Uh, Rotavirus, which is an oral vaccine against a significant diarrheal disease, which around the world kills many people. And uh, you can see very clearly in which year this vaccine was introduced. Waves of rotavirus that occurred every year, predictably, uh, largely disappeared when the thing was introduced. Uh, Meningococcus, uh, which causes meningitis and septicemia, uh, and pneumococcal disease, and then an important one, uh, MMV, for measles, mumps, and rubella. And now I'd like to move on to vaccines used in epidemics. And we have several different approaches to vaccines and epidemics. There are known vaccines against known infections. We get yellow fever epidemics from time to time. There was recently one, for example, in Southern Africa, and we have a very good yellow fever vaccine which can be used, known epidemic, known vaccine. Then there are epidemics we can get with a, against a known uh, infection that you need to adapt to the vaccine. Uh, and an example of that is seasonal influenza and uh, from time to time, fortunately rarely, pandemic influenza. And there you have to adapt a known vaccine uh, to a new variant of the disease. Then you can develop new vaccines against a newly emerging threat. So for example, Ebola has been known for many years, but it wasn't until we had a massive outbreak in West Africa, which many people will remember, uh, uh, that uh, we realized we needed to really push forward the development of vaccines and Ebola vaccines have been taken forward uh, and are highly effective. And then we need to be able to develop vaccines against new threats. And the most important of these now by far, of course, is COVID-19. Finally, two additional ones. There are some epidemics where we might get a vaccine, Zika, for example, a recent uh, major problem. And then there are some epidemics where we have struggled to get a vaccine, of which the most important is HIV. So we shouldn't assume that every time we have a major epidemic, we will always be able to get a vaccine. Sometimes that will not be possible. Now, if you have an epidemic, there are several different approaches you can take but the thing you're likely to be faced with is that for at least some period of time you're going to have a scarce amount of vaccine uh, and a significant number of people potentially at risk and there are broadly three strategies you can take. The first one is you can say I've got a limited amount of vaccine and I'm only going to give it to people who are at the highest risk because I don't have enough for everybody and therefore I'll try and find the people who are at the highest risk of dying or the ones most likely to catch it or the ones most likely to transmit it. So you identify high-risk people. The second approach you can use, and it was very effective with smallpox and was used also with Ebola, not relevant uh, for COVID, um, is something called ring vaccination. And this works when you've got small numbers of cases which are easy to identify and a fast-acting vaccine. And you identify a case and then you vaccinate everyone around them, the people they come into contact with, and then you generally then vaccinate all their contacts as well. So you provide a ring of protection around the person who's infected. That's called ring vaccination, and that stops it spreading into the wider community. The third thing is once you've got enough people vaccinated, you may get population, what's sometimes known as herd immunity. This should only be considered as a policy goal in the context of vaccination, not in any other situation. And in that situation, because the great majority of the population have had a vaccine, if you had a highly effective vaccine, the majority of the population, then uh, the, when the infection wave starts, what you find is that because all the people around the person who might be infected are immune, the wave doesn't properly take off. So because everyone else is protected, I am protected, even if I have not been vaccinated or the vaccine has not properly worked. So these are the three ways in which uh, you can use them high-risk individuals ring vaccination and population vaccination COVID-19 has seen the fastest development of vaccines ever old and relative new technologies have been used all of them aimed at trying to reduce COVID uh, and we've seen successes in multiple different classes I'm going to talk about two of those because they're new but I want to recognise that uh, multiple different routes have all led to a successful vaccine. Uh, Relatively old-fashioned, highly effective things of using inactivated viruses. Um, uh, Protein-based viruses, again, a relatively well-established technique, and they're coming along, uh, and there are are now uh, several uh, in, in various phases of development. But two relatively new, uh, and in one case, very new uh, method in terms of actually using for this kind of uh, situation, uh, what's called virally vectored vaccines and nucleic acid uh, vaccines. And I'll give examples of those two because these are new technologies to be used in this kind of way. What all of them have in common, though, is these are simply a way of presenting to the immune system a protein- uh, or uh, and other antigen of the COVID so that the immune system wakes up uh, and the next time it actually encounters it, which might be with a wild infection, uh, it will actually ki- uh, kill it or, or remove it from the system. Now, most of these vaccines for COVID-19 target uh, the spike protein. So you all have seen photos or photomontages or uh, models of the uh, coronavirus uh, with these uh, spikes around the uh, outside and the very top of them, uh, the very tip end of the uh, spike. Uh, this is a kind of model of what that might look like in three dimensions. And the vaccines are against this spike because these spikes are used by the virus to get into the cell. So if you, they, they, they have to be on the virus, uh, and they're a very good target for vaccination. And we've got some relatively conventional ones, whole, in vac- uh, whole inactivated viruses, for example. Valneva uh, vaccine uh, works this way. Uh, Protein and adjuvant one, example, the Novavax uh, works uh, that way. Uh, But the more recent ones, the viral vectored ones, Oxford, uh, AstraZeneca, already being deployed here in the UK, uh, and J&J Janssen, and RNA vaccines, of which the one being currently deployed in the UK is the Pfizer-BioNTech one. All of these are in the news, so I'm not going to uh, spell out how they were produced. But I would like to just say something about the RNA vaccines and then the viral-vectored ones. The RNA um, vaccine works on the idea of having the nucleic code for the spike protein. And in the case of the um, uh, the, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, this is in a lipid, a fatty uh, nanoparticle injected in. And that's incorporated into uh, our own cells, Uh, which for a short time, because they then break this down very rapidly, this isn't isn't incorporated into your own own, uh, genetic code, this is a temporary thing, they produce the spike protein. And that's then expressed, and the body recognises that this protein is a foreign protein, and then it mounts an immune response. And what you can see in this graph here, this is from, the, uh, from a study in the published in the New England Journal, uh, is uh, in the dark blue lines are the people who are not vaccinated. And as you can see, numbers of cases steadily go up over time. Uh, and in the red line... Uh, is the people who were vaccinated in the small box, uh, vaccinated once up to their f- second vaccine in the bottom box uh, o- over time. And what you can see is that after about 10 days, and initially they're the same uh, lines, now after about 10 days, those vaccinated uh, have almost no further infections. So the fact that they've had this protein expressed in the body has led to the immune response uh, responding and then when the wild infection arrives uh, the immune response just gets rid of, rid of the virus and people uh, don't get clinical disease this is against clinical disease and the RNA viruses the RNA vaccines rather have a huge advantage which they, they can produce quickly and can they can be reformulated very rapidly so if we get a new version of this uh, we can quickly move on to that one. The uh, other relatively new one, uh, and the other form that is being used here in the UK at the moment, uh, are what is called virally vectored vaccines. And the concept of these is you have a relatively harmless or completely harmless uh, virus, generally uh, an adenovirus, which is a kind of cold virus. And the example we're using here in the UK, uh, the Oxford AstraZeneca uh, one, is uh, an adenovirus called uh, CHADOX. It's a non-replicating, so it doesn't actually uh, replicate inside you, just uh, stays inert, chimp adenovirus, so it's not a human one. Um, uh, And it incorporates genes for the spike protein, rather like the RNA one. And then when it's taken up by cells in the body, uh, they manufacture the spike protein. Again, this is seen by the immune system as foreign. Immune system responds... Uh, and then when the people are subsequently infected, the immune system recognises very rapidly that this is they've seen this foreign invader before uh, and uh, gets rid of it. So um, this is, again, this has only been used in a relatively small number of uh, examples before. This is the first really widespread use of this technology. But both of these very rapid, highly effective vaccines. And you can see here, again, the blue lines are people who uh, were in the control group, not vaccinated against COVID, uh, and in the red, those who were. Now, when you start off vaccinating in an epidemic, vaccination initially mainly protects those who are vaccinated because you don't have any population protection. There's only a small number of people protected because you've only got small amounts of vaccine. And therefore, it makes sense to vaccinate the people who are at the highest risk of coming to significant harm. And in the case of COVID-19, the very strongest predictor of this uh, is age. And so the oldest people are by far the highest risk of dying, uh, of going into hospital and having severe disease. Uh, and as you, get, as you go down the age spectrum, uh, the risk is much lower. So if you've got a limited amount of vaccine, you vaccinated the highest risk first, and the highest risk are uh, the elderly. And if you think about this, this is a graph on the right that shows every age bands of uh, people uh, and in terms of who has left, have gone into hospital, all of these people have gone into hospital, uh, and then people who've died. Dark blue are people who've died, Very lightest blue on the outside, people who've been discharged from hospital, uh, and the the group in between are people uh, where we still don't know uh, what the outcome is going to be. Most will be discharged. uh, Some, sadly, will die. And what you can see is the very oldest people have by far the largest number of people who die uh, in uh, the population. By the time you get down to the much younger ages, uh, you actually have many few people dying. Uh, and uh, if you get even, even younger, many fewer people going into hospital. So the biggest impact is by vaccinating the highest risk, who are the elderly. And in, if you think about UK data, over, uh, over 80% of those who died were over 70 up to now. So therefore, vaccinating people over 70 is an absolute priority. But that doesn't uh, mean that that covers everyone who would go into hospital. And around uh, this constituted only just over half of those who went into hospital. So large numbers of younger people uh, still have severe enough disease to have to go to hospital. So you start off with the oldest and you go down uh, the, uh, the age, age bands. And you can think about it uh, this way, which is... If you assume the vaccine was 100% effective, and no vaccine will be 100% effective, if you assumed it did, it was 100% effective, because such a high proportion of the very oldest people, uh, particularly people in care homes, are at most risk if they catch this disease, you would only have to, if this vaccine were 100% effective, vaccinate 20 people in care homes to prevent a single death. If you took people over 80, you'd have to vaccinate 160 Uh, people to prevent a single death. If you chose people over 50, you'd have to vaccinate around 8,000 people uh, to present a a single death. And if you choose healthy people who have no other medical problems under 50, you'd have to vaccinate 47,000 people to prevent a single death. So what this shows is you get your biggest effect from vaccinating uh, the oldest uh, people. But... What you hope is that as you move down the age bands, you soon get to a situation where, firstly, all the people who are most at risk of dying have been vaccinated. Then all the people who are most at risk of being in hospital have been vaccinated. But the third thing you want is to reduce even the small risk of younger people having a very severe outcome. And sadly, people have very severe outcomes and some people die even in the youngest age bands. But you also then start getting to a situation where enough of the population is protected that you actually uh, have many fewer cases in the general population, the rates go right down and that protects everyone. You get towards some form of population immunity. It may may not be complete, uh, but a long way towards that. So what do we know and what do we not know about COVID vaccines at this stage of time? So this talk is being given in February, 2021. We know that natural immunity, and generally that's a good predictor of vaccine immunity, lasts at least six months. We know that uh, there is uh, much lower reinfection rates after a natural infection, but not none. So we do not expect that after vaccination there will be no further cases. We think they'll be substantially reduced. We know that multiple vaccine types with the spike protein, reduce infection. So you don't, it's not just one type of vaccine, lots of different types of vaccine all produce highly effective results. We know that this has got a good side effect profile and data that has very recently come out in the UK, for example, uh, implies that uh, the rate of severe re- re- uh, reactions is probably about one to two in a hundred thousand, and these are ones which can be reversed. They're not uh, necessarily lo- in any sense long term, but uh, one to two in a hundred thousand, uh, and for milder uh, reactions, maybe uh, three in a thousand. Uh, but these are uh, much. These are things like feeling feverish, having uh, pains, and so on. Uh, we are confident that immunity to severe disease is likely to be better than just to infection. So even if the Vaccine doesn't protect you from getting infected at all, it is likely to lead to you having less severe disease. Uh, And we are confident that uh, if we get mutations that get around the vaccine, we should be able to revise the vaccine relatively easily. What we don't know is how long the protection lasts, particularly in the elderly. We don't know how easily and rapidly COVID-19 escapes from the immune system, so evolves around it. We don't yet know what the impact of transmission is at an individual level. So you can't be sure if you're vaccinated that you cannot pass on uh, the uh, COVID to someone else. And we also don't know what the effect of large scale vaccination is uh, on transmission at a population level. So there are several things we do know with confidence, but there are also several things that we do not. But overall, what we're confident of is we have a highly effective and safe vaccine against a very major disease and for this reason this vaccine is being deployed uh, in the UK and around the world. Finally before I move on to the wider global issue to recognise and I'm not going to go through in this any detail that uh, vaccines can also uh, protect not only against childhood diseases and epidemics but prevent some important adult diseases. And the one I want to highlight is cervical cancer. Uh, Globally around half a million women are affected by this cancer, uh, around 3000 cases a year in the UK. Uh, Often younger, this is a cancer which affects people in young adulthood uh, and is almost entirely preventable by a combination of vaccination and screening. A vaccine was introduced in 2008 against the two most common causes of the virus, HPV, Uh, human papillomavirus, which actually causes uh, the the cervical cancer, uh, and that led to a substantial reduction in those viruses, but the other HPV viruses were unaffected, so demonstrating it has a very specific effect uh, on this. And the vaccine effectiveness against these two most important ones was around 82%. Uh, and then subsequently uh, the the vaccines have been produced which actually cover a wider range of the HPVs that can cause cancer. So uh, they certainly work against the infection. Now, we know it's going to reduce the rate of cancer and probably very substantially. How much it will reduce uh, cancer will depend on how long the immunity lasts, and this is a relatively recent vaccine. uh, We're confident it lasts many years, but does it last decades? What percentage of girls are are vaccinated because it's really essential they're vaccinated before uh, they become sexually active uh, and um, uh, what uh, what the effects are over time and what you have here is some modelling studies that show that depending on how long the effect uh, lasts if it's a lifetime vaccine then we will get an even bigger effect in reducing cancer than if it lasts uh, for only uh, a decade but we are confident that this vaccine is going to substantially reduce this important cause of cancer in younger women. The number of deaths vaccines avert is remarkable, especially in lower- and middle-income countries. There was a recent study which came out uh, this year uh, which estimated the effects of vaccination against just 10 different diseases. This is not all the vaccines available. Uh, And their estimate was that between the years 2000 and 2019, so the last Uh, roughly 20 years, 37 million deaths uh, were averted. Uh, And amongst uh, children under five years, a 57% reduction in mortality, uh, most importantly from measles. So vaccination has a massive impact uh, globally. And we're increasingly moving to a world where the vaccines in childhood that I talked about earlier on in a UK context are available Uh, around the world, including in lower-income countries, through a variety of mechanisms such as the Gavi Gavi system. Uh, There's been a delay between high-income countries getting the vaccines and low-income countries, and, of course, we should do everything we can to minimise that delay to as close to zero as possible. But uh, there has been a very substantial increase in the amount of vaccination, very similar to the vaccines given uh, here in the UK, in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. So if you look on the left, using um, diphtheria, pertussis and tetanus containing vaccines as a uh, kind of marker, on the left uh, you you have uh, uh, 1981 uh, and on the right 2016, uh, red, uh, less than 50% vaccinated, blue, dark blue, more than 90% vaccinated, a transformed picture uh, around the world, a really substantial improvement in vaccination rates. And the result of that is the number of child deaths caused by vaccine-preventable diseases has really rapidly decreased. And the improvement in child mortality is one of the great triumphs of public health uh, over the last few decades. So if you compare uh, 1990, uh, almost 12 million children under five died. Uh, In in, in 2017, that number was down below uh, 6 million. And the coloured bars are ones which either are completely vaccine-preventable or, to a large degree, vaccine-preventable. And as you can see, those have come down very rapidly and will continue to come down because of the rollout of vaccines. So a huge impact on child mortality around the world. So finally, Dr. Jenner's legacy. Dr. Jenner, by producing vaccination, a much safer way of preventing infections, led to many of the most feared diseases, largely gone, uh, where vaccines are available. Substantial protection against multiple diseases of childhood. New and rapid approaches to responding to epidemics, as we're seeing now with COVID-19. Major drops in adult disease continuing, including cancers. Uh, And vaccine science is advancing rapidly. I'm confident that vaccines will get more effective, safer, Uh, and increasingly may start to move into other diseases such as cancers. A remarkable legacy. Thank you very much.